10 to 1, episode 115. Hugh Goes There, the fifth season. Welcome to 10 to 1, the podcast where we make top 10 lists about everything, but not today. I'm Brian Kozer. And I'm Melissa Kozer. And just as Brian was on the Hugo's There podcast, I was as well back in May or June of 2019. And we're finally airing uh, that appearance on our website. And so our podcast. So if you are interested in post-apocalyptic earth fiction and humans that have some super abilities, then go check out this book. Uh, if that doesn't sound interesting to you, you can listen to the non-spoiler section of the talk that we give at the beginning of the episode, and maybe you'll get interested. If not, just go ahead and listen to the whole episode. Yeah, I listened to the first two minutes and then decided, uh, yeah, I'd go check the book out. So I have not, I have not listened to this whole episode. And, uh, well, I'm looking forward to eventually listening to it. Maybe next year I'll, I'll get around to reading that book. So hope you enjoy the episode. Send us feedback. Let us know what you think. Uh, if you read, uh, either of the books, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell from last month, or if you read the fifth season from this episode, let us know what you think about it. And, uh, follow us on Goodreads. Uh, go to Goodreads, uh, look up Brian Kozer, look up Melissa Kozer, uh, request us as friends. You can see the books that we're reading. Eventually, all the books that we read will be posted on our website. All of our book reviews will be on our website, kozer.us, but uh, we'll see when that happens. Hopefully by January 1st, because of something we've got brewing, but we shall see. So, uh, until next month, when we bring you, let's see, next month, where we got going next month? Do we have anything next month? We have something planned. No, maybe not. Maybe our next episode is going to be when we return in December for our uh, Christmas episode. So, all right. Well, uh, I don't know. Penny's been a pretty good sleeper so far, so we might be able to squeeze something in in November. Yeah, we're actually, um, now that I think about it, maybe we have... A different episode. So we just recorded intros for for these two episodes, the one you heard last month and this month. But maybe we had another episode still to post. Uh, so that might go. Uh, that might go first. That one might go in September. You heard the last episode in October, and maybe this is November. We'll see. We'll figure it out. You know what month it is. We don't. So uh, yeah. Well, until whenever. I'm Brian Kozer. I'm Melissa Kozer. And you've been listening. To 10 to 1. Hi there, and welcome back to the Hugo's There podcast. I'm your host, Seth Heasley, and I'm reading the Hugo winners one guest at a time. My guest for this episode is Melissa Kozer of 10 to 1, and we're going to be talking about N.K. Jemison's The Fifth Season, which won the 2016 Hugo Award for Best Novel. So, Melissa, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yes, this is you, you are my first. Uh, full married couple that I've covered on the show. So that's good. Yeah. My, my husband was on, I think in December Yeah, and he did, uh, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Yes. 
with you. Yeah. So uh, since he talked about your podcast, we don't have to reiterate that kind of stuff, but um, let's talk about some of your your history as a fan of science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. Well, like any good uh, sci-fi fantasy fan, I started with Chronicles of Narnia, grew up with those books, and those those books were falling apart uh, by the time I got to them. Uh, just from my brothers, my older siblings rereading them, you know, because they're amazing. And, and of course, we didn't mm-hmm. help them along any because we read them so much. And then somewhere between the ages of 12 and 14, uh, I encountered the Wheel of Time series. And mm. that like was a really mind blowing experience. Like it just opened my eyes that there's whole worlds out there that can really be expanded and built upon and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying Wheel of Time is is great literature, but I reread it as an adult and I thought, yeah, it still holds up. Mm-hmm. I also really got into Star Wars as a teenager, the extended universe. And then recently as an adult, some of my favorite stuff is Avatar The Last Airbender mm. and Superheroes. I'm a little bit behind everybody else, as you can see. <laughs> I kind of get into <laughs> the nerdy stuff much later than than most kids, but I'm getting there. Yeah, yeah, and that that gives it time to see uh, what's kinda, the cream and what's the crap. Exactly, right? Like uh, like uh, like Bendy Bono says on the Sci-Fi Christian, right? Um, exactly. What, what is that law? Um, Sturgeon's law. Sturgeon's law. Yes, ninety percent of everything is crap. So that's cool. Um, anything else you want to you want to mention about yourself? Well, I'm a mom of two soon to be three kids. Nice. The next one is due in August. Yeah, that was that was our one ticking clock on getting an episode in, right? You're like, like let's get this done before August. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Well, how about this book? Why this book in particular? Well, my husband happened to mention that you uh, had been looking for volunteers uh, to read through the Hugo winners. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at the synopses for the unclaimed books on your list and decided this one sounded the most interesting and most up my alley. And so I contacted you and here we are. Perfect. So you mentioned that you, did you get to read it more than one time or just the one time? Yeah. Uh, so originally we had, I think you had mentioned we were going to do this show back in like beginning of March or right. or even February possibly. Mm-hmm. And so I read through it pretty quickly uh, within a week or so in January and uh, was not really interested in ever reading it again. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> but I was doing a podcast on it. And then, so I was like, well, I guess I'll have to at least go back and look at a few things. And then months went by and we weren't able to do this episode for whatever, you know, something with on your end, something mm-hmm. on my end. And so uh, finally you said, okay, we're going to do it in June. <laughs> and I was like, I guess I really should reread it. And again, spent about a week just kind of taking taking it apart this time. And well, it was a lot different on the second read through. Cool. I'll, I'll be interested to hear what uh, what your impressions are. Yeah. So if you had to give a quick kind of elevator pitch or or non-spoiler-ish synopsis of this book, how would you do that? All right. Well, it follows the story follows three female characters with superhuman abilities in a world and age where their powers are feared and generally despised. Mm. 
Uh, each one seeks to create a meaningful existence for himself in spite of her circumstances and barriers. And it's got a lot of themes that it tackles, like expectations versus reality, racism, what's it mean to be human, what's it mean to be civilized, uh, do your birth or circumstances define you, hmm. and quality of life. So it's it's actually a pretty deep book. Yeah. So if you had to, if you were going to recommend this novel to anybody, if, you know, kind of, is there anything else that you can compare it to? Any other things that it's similar to? Or like fans of other properties that might enjoy this? Yeah. Um, I'd say if you like post-apocalyptic fiction, mm. uh, this is this is probably something you're going to enjoy. Uh, that's the main thing right there. I've really been getting into post-apocalyptic stuff a lot more lately. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it works for me on that level. Uh, it's a very intelligent book. It doesn't dumb things down for you. You, you got to figure it out as you go. Right. Um, if you like stories that really involve you emotionally, uh, you might enjoy this. Mm -hmm. Or you might not right. <laughs> for yeah. that exact reason. It could go either way. Yeah. But it will involve you. That's, for, that's definitely for sure. Uh, if you like stories... Uh, where humans have special abilities or stories about lost and ancient civilizations. Both of those are really big hitters for me. Yeah. I love reading about, uh, you know, just there used to be this, this grandiose, uh, you know, city and, and now there's nothing and there's just little, uh, remnants that, that you can kind of pick apart and, and try to figure out what happened. So yeah. that's, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. uh, it is not your average happily ever after story. So if you're looking for something different, you right. might like this. Mm -hmm. I will say this is definitely adult fiction. Absolutely. Uh, I, I wouldn't recommend it for teens because it's got a lot of dark and shocking content. Agreed. Yeah. It reminds me to some extent a little bit of like X-Men. Um, even though I'm not terribly well versed in X-Men outside the movies, um, just because mm -hmm. you have people with abilities who are kind of feared and despised and hunted mm -hmm. for, for them. But yeah, it's, it's post-apocalyptic. It's also kind of moving into uh, general thoughts about it. It's kind of genre bending because it seems like magical powers. And so that, right. that moves it into kind of the fantasy side. But then there's, there's mysteries about, you know, post-apocalyptic is um, a science fiction genre. And there's evidence right. of previous, you know, fallen civilizations, and there's some. There seems to be some very advanced technology as well. So, I'm curious in future books if we're going to find out that that this is actually Earth. That's that's the other question because it doesn't actually come out and say it. I think that's what we're we're led to believe, at least through this first book, and and I, that's one of the marks of post-apocalyptic is it feels like, yes, it you know. What we're seeing now is very different from Earth right now, mm -hmm. but you're supposed to feel like, yeah, with one or two steps, wrong steps in the wrong direction, then we could definitely end up like this. So, and I, I got that vibe from this book. So let's go ahead and kind of move into our non-spoiler discussion. We can kind of do that briefly before we get into spoilers, but um, okay. just kind of, like I said, uh, general impressions of the book. It sounded like on the first read, you weren't an enormous fan of the book. Yeah, well, I've uh, I've kind of alluded to it a little bit in uh, recommendations, in that it's it's got a lot of dark content, not your average happily ever after, um, and it gets you emotionally involved. So 
three little clues right there that it made me cry several times. Mm. And I mean, I'm not against a book making me cry, but there were some incredibly sad moments. Yes. Uh, Especially, well, I I can't really elaborate further without spoiling. Gotcha. But I guess one of them is it it happens like in the first 10 pages. So I don't Mm -hmm. know that it's that big of a spoiler. Um, Sure. And it talks on the back of the book about it, too. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it starts off with the death of this mother's child. And the way it is said in the book is just so sudden, so startling. It's it really hits hard. And uh, uh, my children are the age of the child that dies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, 10 pages into the book, I was like, oh, boy, I don't know if I can keep doing this. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't necessarily uh, get much happier mm-hmm. throughout the rest of the book. So, uh, I mean, there's bright moments, and, and, and you see good things happen, but it's... It's definitely very sobering stuff. Agreed. So, so that doesn't make it, it's not necessarily an experience that you definitely want to rush out and relive all over again. Right. Uh, but the second time, second time around, uh, I was familiar with the story. I knew what was going to happen, so I could be a little more emotionally detached and and look look more at the at what exactly is going on on a deeper level and and the brilliance of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me on a first time read, I, I definitely resonate with some of the some of what you said about the the darker tones. I mean, like you said, there's moments of of levity in it, but for the most part, the the tone is just pretty dark. It's some of the stuff that happens mm-hmm. is truly, truly horrifying. But that being said, I really, really enjoyed this one, and it was it was one that I I kept wanting to go through. And part of that was the narrative structure. Okay. Because you have the three parallel stories going on, and mm-hmm. one of them is in second person, which was an interesting thing. It was an interesting choice where instead of saying, um, you know, this character does this thing, it said, you do this thing. Um, yeah, so that's it, true. It kind of pulls you into to the book mm-hmm. that way. And, and But then shifting between the other stories, you're like, wow, okay, we're getting kind of slices of what this world is like. and. Mm-hmm. Some of it's, yeah, some of it's really rough. Um, but, uh, but it was one where as soon as I finished the book, I put a hold request on the audiobook for the next, for the Obelisk Gate, for the next book in the series. Just because that's another thing to let people know about is this is clearly part one of a You cannot story. stop. Yeah. Yeah. You will, you cannot stop with book one. We're just going to put that out right now. Yeah. Um, some some trilogies you can kind of there's a little bit of a breaking point between book one and book two. Mm-hmm. That's not the case with this one, right? I mean, it's not a complete cliffhanger. Uh, I feel like it finishes telling the story it was telling, but not telling the story of this world completely. So it's it, you I, are definitely left feeling incomplete. Yes, yeah, but it. Uh, I feel like it was a logical place to to stop. Because it it brings it full circle from the prologue to to the very end. It's, yeah. it's good good bookends. So, um, how about we just go ahead and get right into spoilers? Okay. So, why don't you can go ahead and uh, talk about what you wanted to talk about? All right. Well, uh, I guess I think the most major spoiler is that the three women I referenced earlier 
are the same person. So you've right. got Damaya, uh, and that's the that's the woman when she's a little girl, mm-hmm. and she's first found uh, out as an origin. Uh, origins are people that uh, have the ability to move the earth around. Uh, they're sort of earthbenders. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there's cyanite, and that's her after she's had training as an origin, and she's she's gone to a special school. And then there's Essen years later, who has she's the she's the one that you first meet and her child dies mm-hmm. right at the beginning of the book. Right. So the fact that they're all different names, um, for a while I really thought that these were very separate people mm-hmm. and that they were gonna meet up at some point later in the book. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit that it wasn't till uh, three quarters, maybe a little farther along through the book, it finally dawned on me <laughs> that they're the same woman. Right. <laughs> and uh, it's it's when Demaya starts to explore through uh, the unex- the unused portion of the fulcrum right. school, and and just somehow uh, it wasn't anything in the chapter. I mean, at the end, it does say that she chooses the name Cyanite, but it was right at the beginning of that chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there wasn't anything specific that tipped me off, but it was just all of a sudden it was like, oh, of course, yeah. they are, that's who, who this is. Uh, and then from there, I figured out pretty quickly that Alabaster is the guy at the beginning of the book who destroys the world. Right. And that that's what I was talking about at the, the bookends, where it starts with Alabaster breaking the earth and ends with him saying, Cyanide, I need you to finish the job. Or, sorry, Essun, I need you I to know, finish the job. I know. Yeah. Someone's bitter. Yeah. Right. With good reason. And and I definitely want to get into talk about that. But I wanted to, mm-hmm. to mention, I I think I had picked up Fairly early on, I may have heard a spoiler someplace that it was told in different time frames, and so okay. So at first, I was thinking, okay, these are going to be hundreds of years apart, but but then I thought, you know, Demaya going to the school probably or, or like Demaya gets a guardian, and mm-hmm. and I thought, okay, well, Cyanite kind of is just getting going out on her own, and it occurred to me that they might be the same person, but I mm-hmm. was slow in picking up that they might all three be the same person, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, and it's the book's very cleverly told in that if there's any, I mean, second time through, you pick up on a few little references, and I love that. I love that in books when, yeah. you know, now you know what to look for, you can see the little clues, but uh, it's not very, very obvious, not apparent. Sure. And so uh, I, I, I do really love books that, that will hint for those who already know mm-hmm. or who are s- smart enough to pick it up. Uh, but otherwise conceal the truth until the big, big shocking moment. Right. Yeah. So like I alluded to earlier, the kind of genre bending here, I'm not sure if the uh, origin's powers is magical or if it's somehow, you know, Clark's law kind of just sufficiently advanced technology <laughs> or something. Um, or if right. it's like- like X-Men where, where these people have evolved this ability. Right. Um, it sounded like, cause I was, I was really looking for clues through that to that, uh, the second time around. And it sounds like it's a little bit of both. Yeah. It looks, it looks like humans had perhaps the ability, the gene in them to, to mutate. And all it took was 
a little nudge in the right direction uh, from, and it, it, at some point it says something about some al- alchemical reactions or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I think like people started messing with things that maybe they should have left alone. And then that tipped them uh, over the edge. Yeah. There's also the the notion that the guardians have some kind of augmentation that allows them to control the origins and turn their powers back on, yes. the, on themselves, um, which is horrifying. And maybe this is the time to talk about the fulcrum, because when we first learn about the fulcrum, it's this is a school. We're going to help you control your special ability. But on the other hand, she she's not leading you down a primrose path to this is all going to be good and and happy and fun because the first thing Mm -hmm. that her guardian does is test that she can basically not try and destroy something uh, as a response Mm -hmm. to pain. And he breaks her hand and that's, I know like this is a little girl. Another shocking moment. I know. Yeah. um, So the guardians are, I think one of the most fascinating things that are left Mostly unexplored mm. through this book because I was I was I had so many questions raised about them and I really wanted to know. It does mention at some point uh, that they have implants yeah. put in that allows them to negate Origeny, um, and they are they're actually the children of Origenes themselves. Mm. Uh, so I I kind of want to know like where. Where are they trained? Uh, who? What are their rules? And 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 what goes into the making of a guardian? Um, and then the fulcrum. Uh, you find out later that it was Origins themselves who started it. You know, the the way you, the way it's presented, it seems like kind of a, a domination thing to to put these people uh, with magical powers put them in their place so that we can show dominance over them and they're not going to gain the upper hand but it ends up actually it was the origins who started the fulcrum in the first place so right. that the world would be less afraid of them um and to show to try and they they put a chain around their own necks in order to hopefully try and help people not be afraid of them but centuries later it doesn't appear to really have worked too much no not so much i mean they're still they're they're allowed to move around uh i mean the wild untrained ones the rogas as they're called Mm -hmm. um i mean mobs will go out and and kill them first chance they get and there's a scene right there at the beginning when when essen is trying to leave her home village and people discover oh she's orogenic they try to kill her, mm-hmm. even though she's leaving and just wants to be away from their town. They're still going to try and kill her because uh, better, better a dead one than a live one. And right. so uh, it it doesn't appear that uh, having train training really has made them less feared or appreciated. Yeah, I kind of get the impression it's just sort of the people are ignorant of them and so they fear them. Where, mm-hmm. Whereas then in, in the fulcrum and in the larger cities, people at least appreciate their capabilities. They still fear them and mistrust them, but it, they're not quite as ignorant, right? They, they, yeah. they know – they use them. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there's no other way to say it. Yeah, there, there are more tools than people. That yes. was actually uh, one of the themes that I picked up on uh, was, was racism is that, you know, people fear – 
fear what they don't understand. And it's the same with stone eaters, too. They're, I mean, mm-hmm. the origins fear the stone eaters because they don't understand them. Nobody knows what those are like. Uh, and it's, it's kind of interesting how, uh, just humanity hasn't really changed in the far future. You know, if we can't right. control it, then we fear it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yet we do still try to control it. And if we can't control it, then we kill it. Yeah. Speaking of control, um, probably the most horrifying thing in, in the novel, and it's saying something because there's, there's quite a few things, um, is the node, is it node maintainer? The node maintainer. Yeah. Just, I, I mean, that, that just, Ugh, it just made me shiver because oh, essentially you had you had a young boy, um, the the one that we saw, right? And and mm-hmm. I guess we're to assume that this is all the node maintainers, where they've been mm-hmm. stripped entirely of their humanity, and, and they're alabaster's turned, children. Yeah, and and just turned into something that is technically alive and suffering, but doesn't have you know the higher brain function or anything like that. It mm-hmm. just it just reacts on instinct, instinct to quell yep. micro shakes and, and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, all free wills taken away. They're just yeah. kept in a permanent coma. It's, it's mm-hmm. awful. Yeah. So Alabaster is an interesting character. Um, it, at first, uh, I have to admit that I thought as, after we learned of um, Cyanide and Alabaster's child, um, his name was Corundum. Mm-hmm. I thought that we were going to, at the end, it was going to be, it was going to turn out that it was him that broke everything because he seemed to be very powerful. I thought we'd get to follow his story in book two. Yeah. And not so much, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Alabaster, that's another horrifying thing, right? The forced breeding program. Um, yeah. Where I think, yeah, we do find out that Alabaster is, is gay, right? He has no interest right. in, right. In, in having any kind of relations with, with cyanide and, but, but they're both basically required to, mate and there's no other way to to put it because that's what they have to do what they're told to do yeah yeah they have to produce a child Mm -hmm. uh, who will probably be terribly mistreated and that's that's not what i know and and alabaster mentions this at one point that uh there's not really any good outcome uh the best that they can hope for is that he'll get to go to school in the fulcrum and that's still uh, you know, he'll grow up without love. He'll grow up just being told that he's, uh, basically like dynamite, useful, uh, in some, some situations, you know, you can use dynamite, uh, to help clear out areas and stuff, but highly volatile, uh, tread with care and, uh, you know, don't, don't use it unless you have to. So, and that's an awful way to, to, view yourself or have Mm -hmm. your, and especially your child, you know, you don't get to raise in a loving environment. You don't get to teach them anything. You're depending on other people to teach them morals, teach them about themselves, uh, teach them everything, their history. And, and, uh, that was another thing is, uh, I guess, uh, there's secret histories, um, that Mm. aren't really being taught, uh, as a general rule, the alabaster has discovered, uh, you know, these other tablets of stone lore that most people don't know about. Mm. So we've gotten this far in the book and haven't even discussed the whole notion of the fifth season. Um, I know. What the title is based on. Um, so do you want to talk about that? Yeah. A little bit? Yeah. So that was, I thought, an interesting way to uh, think about it. Uh, 
So the first four seasons, of course, are spring, summer, winter, uh, summer, fall, winter. And then the fifth season is death. And uh, boy, what a way to think of it as just the, the, the hardened cold view that people have had to adopt towards life and reality that, okay, this is, this is just a time of death and uh, we're going to try and get through it somehow, but we probably won't. Uh, And, and just how humanity's really had to adapt. These people, they have to live in a constant state of disaster preparedness. Uh, I mean, right. We prepare for a hur- for hurricane season, and it's it's not that big of a deal. We go out and b- we buy some canned foods, buy some batteries, candle, you know, some mm-hmm. things like that, so that if the power is gone for a few days, you know, even a week, it's not that big of a deal. Um, and right. uh, as we get advance warning that hurricanes are coming. Uh, it, you know, elsewhere too. I mean, just like tornadoes or floods, uh, yeah. especially here in America. I've lived overseas, um, in Puerto Rico and Honduras, and things aren't as good there. But mm-hmm. even still, in a third world country, you still get advance warning on the news that okay, something's coming up. Even if it's right. blowing up a day in advance, you've still got a day to prepare. Uh, yeah. These people are living for. Something could happen right this instant. Right. And, and last so for six months or five years. Could, or, or 20 yeah. years. Or, yeah. And uh, and and that's a, a really, I, I'm not even sure what the right word is for that, just to live like that, knowing mm-hmm. that you could die at any second. We all think, we all know that we're mortal, but, you know, you, yeah. you don't think that you're going to die at any second in your own, sitting in your own house, you know? Right. And so... It kind of makes you understand a little bit why humanity has become so much harder and colder. You know, there at the beginning, they talk. It talks about the communities, the comms, and how uh, if you're not part of a comm, then you know there's no way really that you're going to last through a fifth season, much less mm-hmm. most of the other seasons. Um, and how the comms help everybody work together. But even then, you see how as a fifth season is starting. Uh, they're in Tiramo, everybody just kind of ends up turning on each other. Right. Uh, and so, you know, humanity still isn't really pulling together very much because I, I, cause I guess they've just gotten more hardened to death, I think. Yeah. And it's just really sad, though, because it's in times of crisis that what really helps is loving and sharing and, and, and pulling together that we're all in this together. Let's mm-hmm. try and make it work instead of every man for himself. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of doubly ironic too, that in the, in the seasons, the abilities of the origins would be really handy, right. To, to try mm-hmm. to avoid like if, if it was a, it was a, volcanic activity or an earthquake or something that was causing a lot of the damage, then having one of these, these folks around would be great. Um, and maybe if you treated them well, <laughs> you know, they, they would actually help. Yep. Um, uh, so the fulcrum is one of those things where it seems to be a bit of a necessary evil, but mm-hmm. like maybe that should be the starting point. And right. then we, we evolve from there somehow. Uh, and I haven't, I haven't, I don't know, I don't have a perfect solution for 
how they would do that. But like they do need to learn control because, you know, there are horrific consequences if they don't. They can end up killing those around them just yeah. in trying to stop an earthquake or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so and that's that's why people fear them is is because of the danger to themselves and that there's nothing that they could do. So you you do need a school where people can be taught control but uh, you need to teach them that they're humans too and that they're yes. people and that we're we're working together for the greater good instead of you are serving us for the greater good. Right. And and the school too is limiting them. It's not mm-hmm. not teaching them to use their abilities to the fullest. It's teaching them to that's use right. them in the ways that are useful to the comms. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one thing that that Alabaster you know rejects. That says you know hey they've shackled us right. Uh huh. He says later that there's there's stuff that he he learned later when he went beyond the Fulcrum's teachings and yes. even Cyanite too. Like when she starts drawing on the power of the obelisks. Uh, you know, she's doing stuff she hasn't been trained to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it it's again we you need the school for the I don't know I would say it's kind of like like life today you need school so that you learn uh, discipline and rigor and sticking sticking to your work and things like that but you don't go to school so that you can learn love and empathy for other humans mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, You learn that from your parents and from close friends and family. And so, but all of the origins are cut off from family. Yeah. Uh, Friendship isn't really encouraged. Um, And so you've got these people growing up with no real emotional attachment Mm -hmm. to the world around them. Well, kind of on that idea, the no emotional attachment, you can, you move into the stone eaters, which I'm very curious if we're going to learn more about them in future books are these just origins who have gone to the you know the limit of their abilities and and turned into earth almost uh, i don't know so i'm i'm i'll be curious yeah that. i was really really looking for for clues about the stone eaters and there's not much about them mm-hmm. it again uh there's kind of legends, a few stories, and, and I like the the little quotes at the end of each chapter. Oh, from That's the always lore. interesting, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, there was one on page 296 where it says, The stone eater is folly made flesh. Learn the lesson of its creation and beware its gifts. So hmm. that one... That I love it. It's it's so vague, and yet it it right. hints at so much. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, you know like they're androids or something that was that were created by by humans. Almost, yeah. Except, and and you could definitely think that. Except Hoa seems so different. Yes, from all the other stone eaters. Uh, you, you you get this whole stereotype, and then Hoa ends up. Maybe he's the the next step in their evolution. Who yeah, knows? Because he he wants Essen to like him, mm-hmm. and he has done everything he can to look and appear normal. Um, you know, hiding the things that he that otherwise he couldn't hide right in front of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very careful not to eat around her so that she won't see his teeth. Uh, he he didn't want to use his powers, except it ended up that it was a life or death situation. Right, and so. And, and that actually ended up being one of my favorite moments is uh, is when they're 
uh, Essen and Hoa are at that little little hut. Roadhouse. Uh, they're j- yeah. yeah, the roadhouse. And that Kirkusa creature comes up and it's going to attack them. And Hoa kills it by turning it into stone, basically. Mm-hmm. And and it's really shocking. And, and, and you see how Essen is horrified. And then Hoa looks down and he, and he looks miserable. He didn't want her to see that. Mm-hmm. And she feels sympathy for him. It, it's a moment where she sees, I think she kind of gets a chance to see how others see her mm-hmm. as something terrifying with powers that they don't understand. Mm-hmm. And yet she doesn't. She doesn't turn into what everybody else is. She it instead makes her feel sympathy for him. And, and she just sees a little boy that she right. wants to to help. And and so that actually ended up being one of my favorite moments in the book. A little a little bright spark. Yeah. Yeah. Amidst like all the well. darkness. Yeah. I, I've mentioned on other podcasts before that I'm not a huge fan of fantasy world building. But okay. but somehow the the world building in this one just seems effortless to me. It just kind of comes with the, mm-hmm. with the setting, um, and since it's through character viewpoint, it it all just completely worked for me. Um, mm-hmm. And there's the other effortless thing here is is representation, right? There's no there's no question. You mentioned that that you know there's obviously allusions to racism in the book um, because people fear the the origins, but in terms of um, the humans in the book, you know they're all different different colors and there doesn't seem to be mm-hmm. any judgment of each other based on how they look, which, yeah. which I thought was cool. Yeah. Uh, uh, talking about world building and stuff. Um, I agree. It, it was very, very effortless. Uh, one of the things that when I first read the book, I thought was going to be a really big turnoff was the way it's, it's told mostly in first person, sometimes in second person. Right. Um, well, it's, it's, I guess a lot of it is third person, yeah, but it's still the present tense mm-hmm. point of view. And and I've read books where that is most books I've read actually where they try to do that, it's just awful. I hate it. Yeah. Um and I prefer the omniscient narrator feel. Uh but in this one it works so well. Mm-hmm. Uh it feels like you're listening to people's thoughts, which yes. makes the story more engrossing. But yet you're still allowed to be an observer and uh, you find out terms and events and powers through through context. So then that makes it more fun to try and figure out what's going on mm-hmm. according to what's been said in previous chapters. And I, I, I like books like that where they'll say something and you're like, wait a second. And you'll 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 flip back a few pages and ah, now that makes sense yeah. in light of what I just read. Any other things you want to mention about this book? We haven't we haven't been talking all that long, it seems yeah. like. Yeah, well, to... I actually still have a fair bit of notes. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mentioned about the different themes and uh and I I, I wanted to talk through some of these cuz yeah. like I the first time through it was all about the story, but the second time through like so much jumped out at me. Uh, and you talked about the world building is effortless. I think the themes woven in are, are done so effortlessly too, mm. just through the story. And it's not, it's not preachy. Uh, it's not trying to get across this is wrong or right or this is, this is how we should change the ills in our society. It just, it, it holds up a mirror. Right. And it was really interesting. Yeah. Even just, just kind of by, by showing the counter example. 
that mm-hmm. that tells you this is not how things should be, right? We shouldn't be judging people yeah. on how they look or or of, you know, of who they are. There's even I guess there's a trans character here as well. Um yeah. and there's there's really no judgment there either, which yeah, is Yeah, we'll get to that later. <laughs> that was an interesting point in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh so expect uh but one of the themes I guess we'll just talk about it now. Yeah. Uh, that actually, uh, when they get to the trans character, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, if if you want to have, uh, for me, a book that's all about, you know, breaking breaking societal norms or whatever and all the, and, and it's, people are, are just doing whatever, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when it got into the really uh, <laughs> raw and gritty details of the love triangle between yes. Cyanide and Enon and Alabaster. I was like, whoa there. Yeah, that's not for kids. I, <laughs> yeah, was, that was the moment when I was like, if I was not doing this for a podcast, I think I'd be done. Because I don't mind, you know, if you want to have that in the book, but I don't need the details. Right. And so, <laughs> whew, that was... Yeah. The, those are on pages 371 and 372. Anybody listening this far that wants to skip them. That's if you, if you're like me and you don't need all the, the details on that. Yeah. Um, but on the, the second time around, I still, I did definitely skip it, but I, I kind of saw the point of it was that, uh, alabaster and cyanite just want to feel loved and human. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they they haven't really had love, certainly not with each other, uh, and you know through their forced breeding, and so um, finally they have this chance at peace and happiness, and uh, and eventually, of course, that's going to be taken away from them right. too, uh, because there's just nothing happy that happens in this book. <laughs> True enough. In fact, at one point it says in the book. On page 361, I, I made a note of this. It says the time of happiness is unimportant to the story. It's Hoa speaking to you. And it's like, yeah, you had some happy times. And just know that they were there. But we're not going to get into the details of it, really, because that's not important. Yeah. It's pain that shapes us. It was like, thanks a lot. I think we've had enough pain. I think we can have a little more happiness. Right. Uh, anyway, so so some of the themes that really stuck out, though, uh, uh, one of them was expectations versus reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Damaya thinks as a child, if she does what she's supposed to, then no unexpected things will happen. Of course, later in Alia, uh, Cyanite does what she's asked to do, what she's expected to do, which is clear the harbor. Mm-hmm. And that results brings disastrous results. Then... Damaya also thinks that adult origins fear nothing, not the stills or themselves. They don't even fear old man Earth. Mm-hmm. And then later, of course, Cyanide discovers that her life is nothing but fear of right. guardians, of her children being used horribly, of of being disco- discovered as an origin and hiding later on. Um, and so things like that with the, that just stuck out that, you know, we all have these ideas of what it's like. Uh, in the real world or what it's going to be like when I'm grown up. And then you get there and you discover, no, nothing's at all the way I pictured it would be. Right. Let's see. I had some, and, and, and you stop me if there's anything that you want to no, interject. I, I was, I, uh, I often say, I, I can't remember where I saw it. I think it was on a, on a card or something that 
maybe I got it for somebody years ago. Um, because I remember being in, in school and thinking, man, you know, when I get out of school and I go to college, you know, then everything will be better. Um, mm-hmm. and then I went to college and I mean, college was a fun experience and everything, but then you're in college and you're like, ah, I just, I just want to be, you know, out and working in the real world. And mm-hmm. so I found this card at some point and it, I, I now often write it in like graduation cards and stuff. I, I'll, I'll say, you know, <laughs> college prepares you for the real world, which also sucks. <laughs> <laughs> And, and like when you're a kid, you think, I'll know everything. I'll know how to handle right. uh, everything when I get to be an adult. And then you get to be an adult and you discover our parents were just flying by the seat of our the, right. of their pants. Yeah. You know, we'll they're, they're figuring them. it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And, and it hopefully makes you a little less judgmental towards the older generation when you realize, you know what? Yeah, they, they were figuring it out just like I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're, a, when you're a teen, especially you're like, ah, oh, those, those adults, they, they're just living in the past. They don't understand what it's like to be now. And then, then you get to be an adult. And it's like, no, they really do understand. And, and boy, uh, <laughs> I feel bad for having ju- misjudged them. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Uh, so one of the things that I think uh, really sticks out from this book, uh, just in all the different characters, is uh, humanity in some in some characters or the lack thereof. Yes. So uh, you've got Jija, which is uh, Essen's husband, and you don't meet him at all through the whole book, but he is right. a monster. Yes. Uh, it, it introduces him as an ordinary man, well-respected in his community. And, uh, and then on page 10, this is, uh, this was the most shocking moment to me of the whole book, even more than the node maintainer. Mm-hmm. Cause you, you kind of, with the node maintainer, you had a build up, a sense of something's wrong as we're getting closer to this scene. Mm-hmm. But with, with Jija, you have, you have Essen thinking to herself about, you know, her living room here. And she liked nursing her son Ucha here. She thinks he was conceived here. His father has beaten him to death here. And right. just the cold brutality of of that thought that a father could beat his, his not even fully three-year-old son to death. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it, it talked a little bit about that, uh, about the son before that and how he was just a bright, happy little boy, had all of the qualities that makes parents love their children, you know, just, just a little darling child. Yeah. And, and his father beat him to death. It's, it's that I, I, I cried yeah, no, <laughs> at it, that it, point. And I, <laughs> it's a gut punch. Yeah. Let's see. And then, then, uh, the guardians, uh, are really, monsters too i mean their cold brutality towards towards children when shafa is slowly breaking damaya's fingers yeah on her hand just to make his point of can you control yourself and then you find out later that he had a knife held to her side too just in case uh she was gonna try and and stop him right and um the way he treats the way Shafa treats Demaya makes me think of of the Wheel of Time series. I don't know if you've read that at all. No, um, no, I haven't. But they have these uh, uh, again. It's it's people with with magical powers, and in one part of the world, you know, they're these women are revered and respected. Uh, 
but in another part of the world, any woman who is found with these magical powers has a collar with a leash attached to it put on. Mm-hmm. And she instantly ceases to be a person. She becomes property. Hmm. And so that's the soul dom is the master, the mistress and the Damani is the property. Now, basically a dog that, uh, you know, if you perform well, then I'll, I'll comb your hair and give you treats, but I still reserve the right to get angry at you. Yeah. Uh, you know, if not, I'm in a bad mood, uh, and, and kick you around the house because, you know, things are just not going my way mm-hmm. and, and they are not, they no longer have any rights. And, and it, it was, it's this, and an, I think the guardian origin relationship is perfectly paralleled by that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's kind of almost like, uh, Demaya has Stockholm syndrome with Shafa too. Right. Like on page 321, 329, it says Shafa loves her in his tender and terrifying way. And she, right. he still ends up being the only one that she trusts. Yeah, there's definitely some of the the guardians that are, you know, that gleefully will kill an origin, mm-hmm. and and it just seems like they're sociopaths. Um, where Shafa, yeah. I, I think we're given to understand that he's a little mm-hmm. different. But well, you think so? And then at the very end, one guardian rips apart Inon mm-hmm. uh, just with his bare hands. And Shafa smiles him at him. Like they both smile at each other, kind of like, I understand the feeling of euphoria that you're getting right now. Yeah. Uh, and it's so it, it really it dehumanizes Shafa in that moment a lot. That you you've been thinking, well, he's not he's not as far gone. He's still he's still better than the rest. Right. And then you realize, no, he's no different from the rest of them. And he he was willing to take Corundum. And and he was going to make him into a node maintainer, right? You know, so so he's I mean he's no better. But then you've got the monsters like like Hoa that try so hard to to seem normal and seem human so that uh, he won't cause alarm to Essen, mm-hmm. and and he's trying to protect her. I mean, speaking of of Essen. She has her monstrous moments too. Yes. You know, she's uh she destroys Tiramo because she gets filled with rage. Mm-hmm. Uh she blames the whole community uh for the death of her son. She and to some extent, I mean, she's right. It right. is the mindset that everybody has, but still they didn't they they still shouldn't die for that, you know. And uh I don't know. It's, I think Essen and Cyanite, you know, the, the, the person that they are, they're, they're, they're an interesting blend of monster and, and human. Cause mm-hmm. like they've got their moments where they, they regret what they've done. You know, Cyanite sees how she has accidentally destroyed, and it was an accident, but she destroyed the, the coastal harbor of Alia. Right. And, uh, and she sees that, you know, because of me, they dared to dream of a future. No one deserves to die for that. And so she tries to to calm down the volcano and do what she can to make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a little bit later, she ends up destroying two ships full of, of innocent people that her her pirate ship raided. Right. And, you know, to, to help keep her secret safe. Mm-hmm. And so it's an interesting thought of, like, uh, did... 
did her circumstances shape her into a monster or was she, you know, what did she already have that inside her? Right. Um, it, it makes you think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you could definitely make an argument that, that her whole, the path that, that she was on with the, with the fulcrum and everything just, and the world, right. Mm-hmm. Just kind of, it's a hard world. It's a hard world. Yeah. And, and so that, that reaction is kind of understandable. And, and as a parent too, you can, you can go, well, she's also protecting her son, but, you know, at the cost of a bunch of lives, it uh, it's a lot to pay. Right. I know. And th- those are things that moral quandaries that don't have an easy answer. Like yeah. you, you want to protect your family, but then, you know, where's the line? How far will you go? Yeah. Uh, and at one point, at what point does it make you it stop you from being a hero protecting your family to, you know, a monster? Mm-hmm. I'll be interested to see kind of where it goes in the future books because I imagine that we're still going to have our um, Essen as our point of view character. But yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really hope that we're going to have Hoa sticking around too. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I had a few more notes. Um, so I, uh, it talks a little bit about civilization. Uh, you've got uh, the civilized world of, of, of humanist, the kind of the capital city. Mm-hmm. It uses people who have been trained to think of themselves as, as nothing but tools. Um, but then you've got Bart and you know, that's, that's where all the fine, the rich people hang out, but then you've got the barbaric, uh, Miov pirates where origins are welcomed right. and celebrated as humans. And it's because of them that we live, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, there's an interesting thought that Demaya has on page 75 or, or maybe it's cyanite, uh, that, she thinks this is what it means to be civilized, doing what her betters say she should for the ostensible good of all. Right. Which is true. We should do. Uh, usually our betters are there for a reason. They they know better than we do. And, and we do need to try and work for the good of all. But uh, she is not allowed to be and do what she wants right. is is the problem in humanness. Whereas in Miaf, she is allowed What'd you think about uh, the use of the cast system? Oh, the the use names. Yeah, yeah, that was fascinating. Um, where where you were? Uh, I mean, some of it is horrifying, right? The the idea that someone is going to be labeled a breeder, and you know, they're only good for producing. That's children. their station in yeah. life. Yeah. Um, but then there's uh, strongbacks, and I can't remember all of them, right? Leadership. Let's see, and- uh, resistant and innovators. I think that's all of them. Yeah, and and I kind of go. Well, just because you name someone leadership, does that make them good leadership material? <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, and I was trying to figure out, like, it seemed as if some of it was dependent on where you were born to, who you were born to. Yeah. And then other things, it was kind of dependent on just what you looked like. Yes. So if you ended up kind of looking really nice, then you might look like you might end up as a breeder. If you ended up... Uh, developing a strong body, then you might end up as a strong back. Or if you have yeah. a an, a smart and intelligent mind, then you might be an innovator. Uh, so it it seems like a little bit better than uh, like say India's caste system, where you are allowed a little bit of of who you are as a person to to come into um, where your station in life becomes, and not just you're born into it and and tough luck. That's mm-hmm. it. But 
it is still interesting because then you know a lot of the times it i mean you you can't you can't get out of that that's your your station in life you're never going to rise higher yeah yeah so i think uh uh just a few last notes here um Sure. Uh, that was one of the things I think about the quality of life that the book kind of uh, very quietly talks about is is uh, through the caste system. Um, then we talked about uh, the the breeding that cyanite and alabaster have to ta- have to take part mm-hmm. in. Uh, on page seventy three, cyanite is thinking she wonders why a part of her is trying to find value in degradation. Right. Uh, she's thinking, well, at least I was paired up with a, a ten ring origin instead of someone lower uh you know she's trying to justify it uh she she thinks of how she's not really a person but she's still trying she still tries all throughout the book to be valued as one and uh, i think it's it's really a shame because for origins the carrot's always out of reach you know they're always going to strive to be accepted and respected Mm -hmm. Uh, but at least they're on the mainland. They're only ever going to be feared and hated and seen as less than human. And uh, there's a terrific end of chapter quote on page 76 that says, tell them they can be great someday like us. Tell them they belong among us no matter how we treat them. Tell them they must earn the respect which everyone else receives by default. There's a standard for acceptance, and that standard is simply perfection. Mm. Kill those who scoff at these contradictions and tell the rest that the dead deserved annihilation for their weakness and doubt. Then they'll break themselves trying for what they'll never achieve. Yeah. It, it, it kind of makes you understand Alabaster's decision, right? That uh, this all has to go. You know, it does. And, and it's a monstrous thing that he does. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, I mean, how many revolutions have started with uh, – We've got to get rid of the old, clear it away completely in order to, you know, yeah. may have any kind of good change come about. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, let's kind of move into final thoughts. Uh, okay. For me, I, I feel like, um, you know, this is a book that gives you a lot of things to think about, a lot to chew on, um, even though it's it's dark and somber and, and dreadful in places. Um, it is beautifully written. Um, I, I found it a very compelling read. Um, so... Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to checking out where the rest of the story goes. Yeah, I um, I did think one thing that was interesting was uh, there's not really really any religion or deities that are mentioned, sure. or a belief in something greater. Uh, I think the closest you get is Father Earth, yes. uh, and it, I mean humanity is seems to be mostly atheistic, and if they think of Earth as a deity, then it's as a, a vengeful one right. that should be feared. So that's that's kind of interesting too, uh, because you know it's in times of of darkness that uh, faith in something greater, faith in God and in in a hope of of something better that propels people to to continue on, and and yet these people don't really seem right. to have that. Uh, so that was that was kind of an interesting thought. Yeah, and uh, I think I think one last thing was. Uh, did you pick up that I guess the moon doesn't exist in this world? I was curious about that because it's only mentioned at the very end of the book. Um, well, uh, there, there's a, a point where Cyanite is out on the ships with uh, with the, the pirates. They're going to go on their raiding parties yeah, and yeah. stuff. And she's looking up at the stars and, and seeing planets out there and stuff. 
but there's no mention of the moon. And I didn't, I, I, and it could have just been a moonless night, but they're out there for several, a bunch of nights. Yeah. And hmm. so if there was a moon, she would have noticed it. And so, uh, so that's interesting to consider how that would affect, uh, Earth's, uh, you know, Earth's tides and right. stuff. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be on the lookout for that in the, in the future books or if I, if yeah. I reread this one. Yeah. I wonder if, yeah, I wonder if there, uh, if, if that's going to be a big plot point, something happened to the moon. And so that was, yeah. that was how Earth ended up being so messed up. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and sum up. Uh, where can people find you? Okay. Well, uh, TTO Coz- TTO.coser.us is the URL, URL for, uh, the podcast that I co-host, mm-hmm. 10 to 1. And you can email me at Melissa J. Coser at gmail.com if you uh, just want to talk about this book or any other books. Or you can find me on Goodreads. And I'm on there just with my regular name, Melissa Coser. Nice. Well, I really want to thank you for doing this. I know that um, there were some some challenges in getting everything scheduled and uh, working around my schedule and then yours. So so I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, it's it's been fun. Um, this is actually the closest I've done to a book report since like <laughs> high school. Uh, but it was it was really interesting, like because it did make me dig down into why why do people like this book so much mm-hmm. and uh and and it made me appreciate something that I might not have otherwise appreciated. And I definitely uh I definitely think I will check out uh the second and third books. Uh is this I think this is a book that if you if you don't like the first time through, you should give it a second chance cuz I liked it better the second time around. All right. Well, again, thanks for doing this. I uh, really appreciate it and um say hi to Brian for me. I will. Right. Bye. Bye. Well, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Melissa. I will put all the links to 10 to 1 in the show notes and highly encourage you to check that out. I will, of course, need uh, somebody to cover the other books in this series. So if you're out there and you want to come on, go ahead and shoot me an email, feedback at hugospodcast.com or go up to hugospodcast.com and fill out the contact form. I also want to remind you, I do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash hugospodcast, where if you want to donate and help... uh, defray some of the costs of putting the podcast on, you can do that. All right, that'll do it for this time. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. The theme music for the Hugo's There podcast was composed and performed by Tim Kuskey.